Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple of months off the podcast for work. Soon as he's back, we'll jump right back into a song of ice and fire with Sansa's third chapter in A Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I've been picking up where I left off last time with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last week, I covered Book 5, Chapter 2, The Passing of the Grey Company, and this week we're jumping into Book 5, Chapter 3, The Muster of Rohan. As this chapter begins, Tolkien is very concerned that his story is getting too complicated to follow, so he provides a neat little summary. Now all roads were running together to the east to meet the coming of war and the onset of the shadow. And even as Pippin stood at the great gate of the city and saw the Prince of Dol Amroth ride in with his banners, the King of Rohan came down out of the hills. Tolkien will pull the same trick when he cuts back to Frodo and Sam in Book 6. They see the shadow retreat from the west, Sam wonders what's going on, and Tolkien tells us, the Witch King has just been cast down. It gives us a sense of simultaneous action along different story threads, allowing us to keep it all straight in our heads without making a big chart with string and pushpins like Charlie and that Always Sunny meme. But it works emotionally as well as logistically. These characters feel separate from each other. By zooming out to the big picture, Tolkien reminds us that their struggles are connected, even when it doesn't seem like that on the ground. Different characters in different places are dealing with the same problems and opportunities. Aragorn walks the paths of the dead, while Pippin deals with Denethor, who chooses to die, walking his own path of the dead, rather than help a new Gondor be born. As Minas Tirith is plunged into shadow at the end of Pippin's chapter, there will be no dawn, Gandalf says, so Aragorn rode into that shadow at the end of his chapter. At the end of this chapter, the Rohirrim ride into that same darkness, and you can already see it spreading at the start. Day was waning. In the last rays of the sun, the riders cast long pointed shadows that went on before them. The king rode now slowly at the end of the day. When at last they came to the bottom of the gorge, they found that evening had fallen in the deep places. The sun was gone. Even as Tolkien focuses our attention on each character in turn, he always keeps one eye on the larger pattern, the long shadows everyone is casting before them as they make their interlocking choices. This chapter shares a setting with the last one, the mountain refuge of Dunharrow, but it plays out differently because we're with a different set of characters. Mary is our POV again, and the way Tolkien writes the natural imagery is filtered through his character. Aragorn and company were focused on the task ahead. Merry doesn't know what his task will be yet, and so focuses on his surroundings. It's a strange country, he thinks about these mountains. A skyless world, a phrase I love. A world above the sky, fitting the presence of the dead and of the shadow spreading from the east. This is where you can hide from the yellow and white eyes, as Gollum would call them. Endless stone all around. It's a refuge, but it also feels like a tomb. Merry is cut off from the outside world and from all his friends as well. They're positioned between worlds, the mountains covered in blue shadows from the east and stained red by the sunset in the west. It's a place to await the end of all things. And there's a beautiful moment when Mary just sits, taking it all in. The sound of the water and the trees, but also the silence behind them all. 
He's half dreaming, Tolkien writes, accessing a different plane of reality. Yet the irony is that Merry is also waking up from his dreams. He thought he would love mountains. Tolkien writes, he had loved the thought of them, marching on the edge of stories brought from far away. No doubt he's thinking of Bilbo's stories of the Lonely Mountain, which is fitting because Bilbo also felt like baggage during the Battle of Five Armies, like he'd wandered into a story that doesn't have room for him anymore. Mountains for the hobbits are something that should remain at a distance, on the edge of stories, poking up over the horizon. That's what makes them mysterious and exciting. Anything could be going on there, something different from life in the Shire where there are no mountains and no adventures. But when you're up close, mountains turn out to be enormous pains in the ass. Not only that, but maybe they're too big. Too big for Mary, anyway. He feels like he has an unsupportable weight on his shoulders, like he's Atlas carrying the earth. He wishes only for a room by a fire. The circular journey back to the Shire, ending with Sam at home. The grass is always greener, and home becomes a distant place to long for. Mary is trying to cross that gap in this chapter. He's trying to make a new home, a new family. The riders of Rohan grin at the funny sight of him on his little pony talking to Theoden on his big warhorse, just like how Faramir's men laughed to see Sam scolding their captain. Merry tries to make sense of the Rohirrim's language. He can understand some words, but not the whole thing, the forest versus the trees. He can sense the feelings of the songs, even if he doesn't know the specifics. It's a question of cultural translation and transmission. We've seen the same thing with the elves throughout the story, first in the Shire and then in Rivendell, where even when the hobbits don't know the language, they can pick up on the feelings. Merry is trying so hard because he feels lonely. As it stands, he's the last of the Fellowship, which is a unique situation in this story, other than Sam for the moment as he tries to catch up with Frodo and the orcs. Speaking of which, Merry misses Frodo and Sam. More than that, he realizes it's been too long since he missed them, since he even thought about them. It's a cold touch on his heart, Tolkien describes it, like the Nazgul blade that touched Frodo. It reminds Merry how these bonds can break with distance. I came along for them, but I'm forgetting them, because the story, the road has swept me along somewhere else, where I feel all alone. And that cold touch, that shivering, it's a perfect introduction to Harrowdale. Merry overhears Eomer and Theoden talking about it. And that is a lot of his job in this chapter, to be our eyes and ears. Like with Pippin in Minas Tirith, though, Tolkien works hard to balance that camera role with his own character arc. These chapters, however, are also about Theoden's arc. We saw that arc begin in Book 3. Theoden was crumbling under age, despair, and Wormtongue's wicked words, until Gandalf brought back the light, encouraging the king to do what he can with the time and strength remaining to him. As I've said before, Theoden's story is an inverse of Denethor's, redemption versus corruption. When Eomer suggests, for what is clearly not the first time, that Theoden stay behind at Edoras rather than ride to war, Theoden responds with a smile, whereas Denethor treats any challenge to his authority with scorn. Theoden knows that Eomer is only speaking up out of love, whereas Denethor cannot accept Faramir's love, preferring his projection of Boromir. Theoden has also lost a son, his son and heir Theodred, but he does not allow grief to rule him, calling Eomer his son instead. Think of that. Theoden is more paternal to his nephew than Denethor is to his actual son. Theoden is trying to leave a legacy behind, while Denethor is convinced there's nothing to leave behind 
and no one to leave it to. Theoden points out to Aemir that Wormtongue also told him he was too old to do anything. That's what led him into despair. And that's not to say Gandalf fixed everything forever for the king. Theoden glances back at his men, fading into dusk as Tolkien writes. The shadow is coming for them all in the end, not just the old men like him. All we choose is how we face it. No matter how long it's been since I've ridden, Theoden says, I will do it. I will not lean on a staff again. I will live until I can't. After all, if we lose the battle, my hiding in the hills won't help. And if we win, it will have been worth my sacrifice. Theoden is working so hard to foreshadow his own death here, it's like he looked in a seeing stone and saw it coming. But his argument that waiting here would be useless reveals the limits of his worldview. Waiting here is exactly what he's asking Merry and Eowyn to do, and they refuse for the same reasons he does. I think that Theoden is also still just riding the high from Helm's Deep. As Tolkien writes, the king of the Mark came back victorious, voices cheering, horns blowing to welcome him. Yet there are no lanterns, no campfires to gather round and tell the story. Gandalf came through here on his way to Gondor and warned them to stay under cover. There are eyes watching above, cold intelligences that love them not to borrow from the War of the Worlds. So you have the glory of the warrior model, the, the death drive, that pre-World War I standard of epic heroism, mixed with a very modern sense of dread, a parallel to what we saw in Book 4 with Boromir versus Faramir. As they climb up the mountain steps, they see the Pukulmen, the statues, looming mournfully, as Tolkien writes. No one remembers them. No one remembers the Druidane, as they're called. The Rohirrim, Merry thinks, don't even seem to see them. They're just that used to them. It's a ghostly civilization like the people who carved them, but unlike the ghosts in the mountains, there's no legend to reactivate them. Theoden could pass away as easily. So could they all. This place seems so defensible. No enemy could approach, Tolkien writes. But the ultimate enemy isn't Sauron. It's time. And time can bring down mountains, as the riddle goes in The Hobbit. But the Druidane will return, just as the other men of the White Mountains do in ghostly form. We're always sharing space with the past, which means the future is always sharing space with us. You can see it if you really look. The Pukul men are also a parallel to the Hobbits, culturally and geographically isolated, invisible to others, yet vital to the war. And so Mary sympathizes with them. He's in the position of reading signs and symbols. He's trying to pick up on the mood in the room. Like I said, while he quite literally doesn't speak the language, he's able to sense the emotions. So while he doesn't know about the paths of the dead yet, he can tell something is off about the rows of cracked stones marching off into the mists. Not only because that's a creepy sight, but also because the Rohirrim have pitched their tents as far away from that shit as they can to the point of nearly toppling off the cliff. Merry is out of his context, but he's observant, he's smart. Back in Book 3, he was also able to figure out the internal dynamics of his orc captors. That dread in the imagery is there in the dialogue too, as Eowyn comes out to greet them. Unlike Aragorn and company in the last chapter, this is the first time Merry has met the Lady of Rohan, an important character for his story, emerging from the fog wearing armor, like a character out of myth and legend. She says all is well. But Merry can tell, even though he's just meeting her, that she's devastated. Though he can't imagine someone so strong weeping. You can already tell he's swept away by love for her as he was with Theoden. Pippin makes his bonds in Gondor, and Merry does here in Rohan. 
Eowyn says that although the people accepted being uprooted from Edoras and moved here, it was not without hard words. Under the surface, she's talking about herself, the hard words in her final conversation with Aragorn, as he left her behind here to await her men. Speaking of Aragorn, Eomer and Theoden both ask after him. Eowyn says he is gone, looking at the mountain as if blaming it. The way they talk about it, it's like Aragorn is already dead. And that's how they sound to Merry. Dead inside. Gone like the ghosts. This is beyond Merry's ability to read between the lines. All he can do is stare down the mountain as it vanishes into the night, looming like the blank shadow in the east. What are the paths of the dead to Merry? No more than just another doom. They've all followed the paths of the dead, it seems to him, gone off and left him in groups. Merry's turn is coming. He can feel it. But he's not even in charge of it. He goes where the king goes, bound to his service like Pippin and Denethor. Seems pretty hopeless, doesn't it? But in the middle of this, Merry remembers the most important thing of all. He is very, very hungry. It's the same dynamic with Pippin and Baragond a couple chapters back. Whether you're living in Utopia or the End Times, you always have to eat. And doing so together can provide more than a distraction. It reminds you of what you're fighting for in the first place. It's that earthy quality of the hobbits that grounds them as Tolkien's primary POV on this grandiose melancholy universe. Just as Merry realizes he's starving, a trumpet calls him for dinner. So we get another scene all about trying to cross the gaps of cultural knowledge and perception which isn't incidental because we're forging a new last alliance against the Shadow. We have to try to come together. Theoden is deep in thought about what comes next, the decisions he must make for Merry and his men, as well as himself. And so even as he smiles at Merry, makes a space for him, asks him to tell his tales as the king promised, that's not what happens at all. It's not even that they have to talk logistics. That'll wait until the messenger from Gondor shows up. Now, they're all just too depressed for Merry's happy hobbit stories. Again, this storyline is a mirror image of Pippin's time with Denethor. He doesn't want to sing Shire songs because they'll seem out of place. So they all sit around silently, just, just sitting around thinking about death. And so naturally, Merry brings up the paths of the dead to break the silence. The royal family of Rohan delivers a bunch of exposition about the paths. And on this read, I was thinking some of this stuff might have made more sense in the previous chapter, where we actually walk the paths of the dead. It could have enhanced the atmosphere. But that previous chapter was already covering a lot of ground, and this one is less about the paths themselves, and more about the intense hold this ghost story has on the Rahiram. This is where we learn about Baldor, son of Brago, the guy whose skeleton Aragorn found in the previous chapter. Theoden tells us that when his ancestors first came to this land out of the north, they encountered a man before the door of the dead, tall and kingly, but so still he might have been made of stone. Yet he lived and spoke, the way is shut until the time comes. And then he died on the spot. Everything revolves around the return of the king, and so many deaths from this man to Baldor seem in vain if that day never comes. The Rohirrim have labored under the shadow of the past, the knowledge that the bond with Gondor that gave them this land could all sour and go wrong. There are limitations to their ability to make this place their home. Theoden says that perhaps Aragorn's rise means that that time has indeed come. We know that's true, but for Eomer, as for Eowyn's people after Aragorn left, Aragorn's decision is inexplicable 
He can only see it as madness, something grim and fey in him, as they say. Aragorn has become other to them, just as they are to Merry. In descending into the dark, Aragorn has become something out of time, like the Pukulman. Without knowing why he did it, what it is he's trying to accomplish, this powerful family feels as small, as abandoned, as the humble hobbits. And this is happening at the worst possible time, Eomer says, for war is at hand. Speaking of which, that's when Hergon of Gondor shows up to beg for their help on Denethor's behalf. Merry thinks he's Boromir reborn at first, so alike do they look, which is interesting because it's the exact opposite of what Pippin thought about Boromir's own father Denethor, that he looked more like Aragorn. The idea of Boromir reborn fits this part of the story, all about ghosts and the return of the repressed. And that also fits what Hergon has brought, the Red Arrow, not seen in Rohan for many years. We haven't been told what the Red Arrow is, Merry has no idea what it is, but it doesn't matter. Here's a cultural sign we can easily read. It's clearly a summons to battle, from how they're talking about it. Theoden trembles at the sight of the arrow, despite, as Tolkien writes, knowing it was coming. Seeing that blood-red color come out of the stories into your life makes it real. The characters cover up the fear with courtesies, a familiar dynamic in Lord of the Rings as in life. Hergon reassures Theoden that he comes with a request, not a command, and Theoden says that even if the threat of the shadow did not extend to his own lands, the Rahiram would ride to aid Gondor for its own sake. But underneath that, the grim realities of their situation poke through. Hergon passes on Denethor's message that the Rahiram would be better off getting inside the city before Sauron's forces arrive. Not only is that unrealistic in terms of the timeline, but, as Theoden says, it would negate the Rohirrim's primary military strength as cavalry, riders in the field. Denethor isn't really thinking about that. He's gathering everyone to him as one last funeral pyre, the west going out in a blaze of glory. In the end, Theoden says they won't be able to make it to the White City for another week, which Hergon says will be way too late. It will serve only to disturb the orcs at their victory feast over the bodies of the fallen men of Gondor. In the morning the shadow falls. Merry has the same disorientation as Pippin in Minas Tirith. It throws everything off, all their efforts to make themselves at home, make their lives make sense. There is no dawn, only a heavy roof of gloom. Merry thought this was a skyless world before, but now look at it. The shadow comes from Mordor, of course, as one of the emissaries from Gondor says. He saw it following them here. That's what they're asking Theoden to ride into. Again, he admits this was inevitable. We come to it at last, the great battle of our time. The passing away of all that is withering around us, win or lose. Theoden is glad only that he doesn't have to keep skulking around like a badger in a trap, as he said in Book 3. Yet even as he prepares for a glorious last stand, he keeps one eye on the logistics, asking if there's enough food for his men in Minas Tirith, allowing them to travel light. Theoden may be prepared to die in battle, but he's still making sure his people can outlive him, the ideal of stewardship Denethor is failing to live up to. The glorious image alone won't sustain itself. When the horns blow, Merry thinks they no longer sound so clear and brave as when they welcomed the king home. Under the shadow, they sound harsh and ominous, the heralds of death. They're riding into the grave, and Theoden isn't taking Merry with him. And this isn't exactly a huge surprise. Theoden said Merry would be like a son to him, only for a little while. And the reasons he gives are legitimate. 
You can't keep up with us on a pony, and you're too small to ride one of our horses. I release you from my service, but not from my friendship. He says it with love, unlike Denethor, who says that same thing to Pippin, I release you from my service, after his resolve has given way to nihilism. And Merry's got that hobbit gumption, his desire to take part and not be left behind while his friends face adventure and danger. That's what kept him going all this way. I won't be left behind, he says to himself. I won't. I won't. If that sounds familiar, it's supposed to. This is exactly what Eowyn has been saying, filtered through the gender role she is forced to play. Theoden loves them both, but he's still an old man set in his ways. He's ready to die, but he's not ready to let go of his worldview as easily. He says he would take Merry with him on his horse if he could. Eowyn will do so instead. And you can see her coming up with the plan. Right after Merry begs to go, she whisks him away, saying Aragorn asked her to arm the young hobbit. She gives him helm, shield, and jerkin, telling him that he'll need them before the end, and maybe they'll meet again. I imagine her, like, winking furiously at this point and Merry just looking confused. She sees what they have in common. Tall human woman and stubby male hobbit. Neither of them fit the image of the warrior, and so maybe they can help each other. Outsiders teaming up to game the system. What about Theoden's objections, though? Isn't Eowyn putting both of them at risk by carrying Merry into combat like this? Well, yeah, she is. There's that spine-tingling moment when Merry notices one of the king's men watching him, the glint of clear gray eyes, Tolkien writes, gray like the gray company that walked the paths of the dead. And Merry shivers, as he did when thinking of Frodo and Sam passing into the shadow. They increasingly think they're not going to make it back from Mordor. And same applies here. Merry thinks there is no hope in those eyes, only the death drive. Eowyn is not intending to return, and presumably she thinks the same of Merry when she brings him along. It's thrilling, even inspiring, but it's also chilling. Tolkien is again calling the glory of the warrior model into question, identifying it as the opposite of stewardship, which allows for the continuation of life after the war. Then again, to be fair, what if it seems like there won't be anything left after the war? Then maybe that burst of hopeless heroism, no chance, no choice, is necessary. The people of Rohan have that courage. Tolkien writes, doom hung over them, but they faced it silently, drawing hope from Theoden standing tall in the saddle. And that's another reason he's riding with his men instead of sending Eomer in his place, to give everyone just enough hope to make it there. Like the hobbits have just enough Lembas to get to Mount Doom. And yet, as usual, Tolkien skips ahead in time to tell us that they will sing of this day, a song about how Theoden, son of Thengel, led his men into the shadow. And this lets us know that the shadow will pass and Middle-earth will endure. Which, of course it does, because we're reading the story of the world as it was before us. The story that ends with humans inheriting the world from the Elder Races. The suspense isn't really whether Sauron will triumph. We know he won't. The suspense comes from the character choices made along the way. As Frodo and Sam said, you don't know how your story will end. So Merry begs to come along one last time, lest the songs report that he stayed behind, immortalizing his uselessness and shame. One last time, Theoden refuses, as Aragorn refused Eowyn, and so Eowyn brings Merry along. Tolkien doesn't exactly work hard to keep this a secret. When Merry says he doesn't know his guardian's name, the writer says, Do you not? Then call me Durnhelm. Not that my name is Durnhelm, call me that. Durnhelm, roughly translated in Old English, means secret helmet, so that applies perfectly. 
and Tolkien even notes that Durnhelm weighs less than most men, which is why their horse can bear them both. I will talk more about what Tolkien is up to here with Eowyn's character when she reveals herself at the Pelennor Fields. Here, what matters most is the sense of choosing, and then accepting, your fate. Theoden sums up this whole part of the book when he tells Merry that all their paths could be called the paths of the dead. As they ride east, they get word of orcs troubling other parts of Rohan, but they have no time to help. They've rolled the dice, and there's an exhilaration that comes from an end to the deliberation. Even as hope fades in the face of the shadow, descending at the end of this chapter just as it did the previous two. Next time, the shadow's forces finally arrive to make war. So I've been wrapping up each of these Lord of the Rings episodes by talking a little bit about the movie adaptations that came out around 20 years ago from Peter Jackson and company and how they handle each stretch of the material. And most of the world building of this chapter was cut from the movie version. And some of it I do miss. No Poco Man means no wild men helping the Rohirrim reach Minas Tirith in time, which is an element of the story I really love. Sometimes, though, it's for the best. I think it was a wise choice to eliminate the Red Arrow and focus instead on the, the, the beacons, the fire beacons being lit up, the great cinematic flare of that, the fire leaping from one mountain to the other as the, the soundtrack roars. And we still get that ragged sense of doom that makes the Rohirrim so compelling. Really captured by Bernard Hill's performance as Theoden, declaring they'll ride into battle even without enough men to win. I think it was also wise for the movies to cut up and scatter the big monologues, picking up on them wherever and whenever they're needed for a little jolt for the audience. Aemir gets to declare right before they ride off, Oaths ye have taken, now fulfill them, as Theoden declares at the Pelennor Fields in the books. In the movie, Theoden just thinks the great battle of our time bit to himself, making it more melancholy allowing us to feel like we're inside his head, so his death is that much more potent. And I, I really do love the characterization of Theoden in the movies and his performance, the way he hesitates at first about the beacons and then says, Rohan will answer. I love when he tells Eowyn that Aragorn led them to victory and that he, Theoden, feels bad about that, but also that Eowyn shouldn't fret over Theoden's misgivings, because you are young and tonight is for you. Theoden understands that even his regret is something to move past, and there's a relief to realizing how small you are in time. There's also terrific stuff going on here with Eowyn and Mary, their fledgling bond really sold by both actors, even a hint of attraction with Mary pulling out his sword and almost cutting her in that very Freudian way. Eomer scorns Mary, allowing Eowyn to stick up for both of them. Why should he not defend those he loves? Why shouldn't I? The movie of Return of the King doesn't hide Eowyn's identity, which was also a good choice. It would not have been believable that Miranda Otto was anyone but who she was, just like how Game of Thrones didn't pretend that Barristan was Arston Whitebeard. It doesn't make it any less exciting when she whips off that helmet, as I'll get to when the Rahiram arrive at the Pelennor Fields. So that is going to wrap us up for this week on The Lord of the Rings. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and a bunch more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com, and you can follow me at PoorQuentin on Twitter. Next week, we'll be returning to Minas Tirith for Chapter 4, The Siege of Gondor, which I am probably going to split into two episodes like I did with the first chapter of Minas Tirith. Just a big, exciting chapter, a lot of stuff going on, some of the most viscerally thrilling and horrifying stuff in the whole series. So I'm really looking forward to it. So thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week for more Lord of the Rings.